0: that have been fought throughout history, and bloody hell, I'll tell you what, some of them were over very quickly indeed. Now, obviously, you know, war, no bloody good, bugger of a thing, but as my dad always says, quick game's a good game, so you might as well get it out of the way as fast as possible. This was a a topic suggestion sent in by alert listener Nahum Hackett, um, who, uh, I don't know how many of the shortest wars that Nahum was uh, aware of, or or, you know maybe had in mind, but uh, once you get down to the top of this list, once you get to you know the uh, the the very very shortest wars in history, it is it's some real uh, blink and you'll miss it action here. So we're going to get across um, five of the shortest wars to have been fought throughout history. Although I, I, I should I suppose I should point out that this list is not definitive. Um, I've had sort of 1989 as a as a somewhat arbitrary cutoff date. Um, for stuff on this podcast, obviously the year that the Berlin Wall fell, it ushered in the globalised information age, etc. A bit of a a a historical signpost there. So in this episode, we're looking at the five shortest wars that took place before 1989. So this knocks out stuff like the Russo-Georgian War from uh, 2008, which was just six days long, and also the 10-day war from 1991, which lasted for, I mean, well, Ten days. You probably probably guessed that one already. Um, also, not including wars that were part of larger conflicts themselves, such as the uh, Indo-Pakistani War of 1971, which lasted for 13 days. Um, it was part of the larger Bangladesh Liberation War. It was its own conflict, I suppose, within that. But you know, the, the other the Bangladesh Liberation War had been going on for months beforehand, so it's sort of a you know it's kind of tied up in that package. So, bottom line, we're going to cover today the the five shortest wars that took place before 1989 uh that weren't uh nested inside larger or longer conflicts there and you'll notice that all of these wars are relatively recent which obviously stands to reason if you want to finish a war inside of two weeks you know things like cars and planes and cruise missiles definitely help hundreds of years ago you know within two weeks you'd be lucky to have all your blokes of bloody get their chainmail on and uh, start walking on foot down the road to the battlefield might be a nightmare so anyway let's get to it let's have a chat about the five shortest wars in history Obviously, little asterisk on that sentence, terms and conditions apply, as I say, but off we go. Here we go. <clears throat> first up, first up, we've got the Serbo-Bulgarian War, but already I know what you're asking. You're saying, well, Riley, you know, it's all very well to talk about the Serbo-Bulgarian War. Which one are you talking about? Was it the one in, 18, in 839, in 853, 917, 1330, perhaps, 1885, 1913, 1915, or was it the one in 1941? The Serbians and the Bulgarians, mate, they've been kicking each other's teeth in for over a thousand years. And while, you know, if you look at the scoreboard, the Serbians are currently ahead there. um, They did get completely conquered by the Bulgarians a couple of times. Anyway, we're going back to the one in 1885 here. So the 1885 uh, Serbo-Bulgarian War, uh, which began on the 14th of November with a Serbian invasion of their neighbour. Uh, observing the ancient ancient traditions, of course, you know. Good to see the uh, the ancient uh, uh, the ancient practices being passed down. Uh, in going war in going to war against the Bulgarians. Now, despite being so short, this war had some pretty pretty bloody ridiculous stuff going on, and, and the and the end result being a bit of an upset victory as well. So let me tell you this: um, we'll set the stage. In September 1885, Bulgaria declared that they were going to unify with Eastern Rumelia, which was a a semi-autonomous province of the Ottoman Empire, uh, what we probably call Turkey these days. And in 1885, Bulgaria was technically a vassal state of the Ottoman Empire, but largely operated independently. And Eastern Romania was full of ethnic Bulgarians, so the unification was a popular idea in uh, in Bulgaria. Or at least it was not, however, a popular idea elsewhere. The great powers opposed it: particular uh, Austria-Hungary and Russia. As well as the Ottoman Empire and, of course, Serbia, none of them were a big fan of this uh, unification idea. None of these nations wanted Bulgaria to, to consolidate or solidify their power with unification, but it went ahead regardless, to the uh, to the chagrin of many. Uh, the Bulgarians expected retribution from the Ottomans, right? Because obviously, they you know, as a vassal state of the Ottomans, they were expecting that there was going to be some kind of a consequence from uh, from the Ottoman Empire, and so they marshaled their forces, the Bulgarians, they marshaled their forces along the border that they shared with the Ottoman Empire. However, it wasn't the Ottomans that responded. It was actually Serbia. Serbia was bolstered by promises of support from the powerful Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so instead, it was the Serbians that ended up attacking Bulgaria, while the Ottomans actually stayed out of it altogether. They didn't get involved at all. So the pretext that the Serbians used to invade, right? They've obviously got to have a casus Belli here. And, and, and the one that they use, is, it's, it's pretty funny. So check this out. Part of the border, right? Part of the border between Serbia and Bulgaria was a river called the River Timok. And uh, over the years, this river had kind of changed its course enough to result in a Serbian guardhouse ending up uh, in what was now Bulgarian territory. And when, when Bulgaria came along to ask the Serbians to, you know, please get out of their country, thank you very much, the Serbians refused. And so the Bulgarians then expelled the Serbians by force, and the Serbians responded with an invasion, as you do, hoping to catch the Bulgarians by surprise. Now, on paper, the Serbians had this one in the bag, that all the all the advantages, that a larger army than the Bulgarians, it was more experienced, they'd been fighting against the, fighting against the Ottomans for years, and not to mention, right? They had some very swish modern rifles, brand new they were, although their artillery was lacking a bit, admittedly. These brand new rifles, right, best you could buy in Europe, they were looking very, very good. Bulgaria, on the other hand, right, had a young, inexperienced army. All the Russian officers and commanders that had been in charge of the, of the Bulgarian army, they'd left and gone back to Russia in protest at this unification thing. Um, and while Bulgaria did have better artillery than Serbia, they were outnumbered, they were outmuscled, their guns weren't as good. Uh, and what's worse, they were deployed in the wrong spot. You'll remember all the Bulgarians had been deployed, to, you know, in, to fight off the Ottomans in anticipation of an, of an Ottoman retribution here. So they've all been put in the wrong spot here. So the Serbian king Milan I he reckons this one is going to be a walk in the park. He wanted to claim all the victory for him, all the glory of victory for himself here. He wanted to, uh, he wanted to basically do this one single handed. He, he figured out, right, I don't need my generals, I don't need my you know high ranking officers. I'm going to do this one myself because it's going to be so easy. So he decided to personally take charge of his armies. And rather than calling on, you know, as I say, these experienced and these battle-hardened generals, he instead just brings along officers that were blindly loyal to him rather than the ones that were, you know, good at their jobs. And uh, feeling extremely confident of victory, he only also mobilised the younger and newer recruits, leaving all the veterans at home. And there was a reason for this. This one actually did make a little more sense here, although, you know, not for a particularly good reason. Check this out. At this point, right, Serbia and Bulgaria actually had a common enemy, a common foe, more or less. It's, it's The political situation is pretty complicated, but basically, the simple, the long and the short of it is, they had a common foe in the Ottoman Empire, right? Even though Bulgaria is technically part of the Ottoman it doesn't matter. They, 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 Both of them didn't like the Ottomans. Both of them were coming into conflict with the Ottomans over the years, and many of the veterans, the Serbian veterans, veterans had actually fought battles against the Ottomans. And King Milan knew, that his soldiers wouldn't like the idea of fighting, fighting the Bulgarians, you know, the whole enemy of my enemy and all that sort of stuff, and that the veterans in particular wouldn't like going up against, you know, again, the enemy of my enemy. So he left them all at home. He left all these veterans at home, these battle-hardened veterans, and he took all the keen and green soldiers and then just lied through his teeth to them. Milan told all of them that they were actually going to fight the Ottomans alongside the Bulgarians, so the Serbian army is mobilized, expecting to go into Bulgaria and fight the fight the Ottomans alongside these Bulgarians, where instead, they're fighting the Bulgarians, and the Ottomans are nowhere to be seen. And as you might have guessed, this did not end up going well at all. As when the Serbians realized that they were actually there to fight Bulgarians. Morale absolutely plummeted, and they're having a terrible time. On the other side of the border, however, the Bulgarians, they had the wind in their sails. This young army, despite its inexperience, it was enthusiastic, enjoyed high morale. They believed their fight was a just one um and additionally they were able to reposition to meet the serbian invasion much faster than expected and uh, as the you know the ottoman invasion uh, never actually came they were they were able to chuck themselves at the invading serbians instead with uh, with uh, with abandon and it only got worse from there for the serbians remember those fancy new rifles i was talking about before yeah these you know you know flash brand spanking new ones amongst the best available in europe well these ended up uh, back well not backfiring in a literal sense but in a figurative sense these end up backfiring enormously because None of the Serbians, right, these brand new rifles, none of the Serbians, they'd, none of them were trained with them. They didn't know how to use them properly. They didn't know how to use them at all. They're like, they, they, you know, not to mention the officers who are in charge largely idiots. They're ordering rifle volleys from distances of 800 metres or more, wasting a ton of ammunition with these soldiers who don't even know how to operate their weapons. So, not. Oh, oh, and by, by the way, wasting ammunition, which hilariously, that was not something that Serbia had a lot of, because when they ordered the guns, they ordered ammunition to go with the guns based on the older, slower-firing rifles that they used to use, and because these rifles shot much much faster, they ran out of ammunition way, way ahead of schedule. So from picket to post, it was an absolute disaster for the Serbians that expected a you know, to just march into Bulgaria, capture the capital Sofia, and crush any resistance that the Bulgarians put up, but they completely underestimated the size and the fighting capability of the Bulgarians, and also, you know, didn't know how to use the weapons they'd brought. So in the mere two weeks that the war was fought, the Bulgarians, they wiped the floor with the Serbians, completely repelling the invasion, winning more or less every single encounter. And this was one of the reasons for the war's swift end, seeing that it was spiralling out of control, right? Austria-Hungary goes, whoa, 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 we've got to put a stop to this. We've got to put a stop to this before the the Bulgarians conquer the rest of Europe here. What is going on, right? So like a teacher stopping, you know, two kids from fighting on the playground, pulling each other's hair, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, they come to Bulgaria and they said, all right, mate, listen, you've had your fun. You've decked them. You've taught them a lesson. You put them on the ground here. It's time to stop now or, you know we're going to have to get involved. So just 14 days after they had invaded Bulgaria, the Serbians, they were forced to sign a ceasefire after the the Bulgarians successfully defended their homeland. And this peace agreement not only confirmed no changes to the Bulgarian territory, but also more or less enshrined the unification the whole unification process with with Romania that they've been this whole thing was based on, right? Which was a very important step for Bulgaria and its political position at the time and historically. So, uh, look, you got to say at the end of the day, GG Bulgaria, GG, an upset victory there against Serbia. Well played, mate. You know, I guess it's just a shame. About, shame about all those wars that you lost in the Middle Ages, I suppose. Next up, we move forward to uh, to 1925 here, the interwar period uh, for a war that is rather excitingly referred to as the War of the Stray Dog, although some rather more boring historians prefer to call it the Incident at Petrich. And, you know, if I'm completely honest, calling it a war is a bit of a stretch. Um, doesn't matter, though. It still counts. And uh, wouldn't you know what this short war involves? Once again, our mates, the Bulgarians, who I reckon seem to have a bit of a thing for getting wars done nice and quick, unless they're, you know fighting the Serbs in the Middle Ages, in which case you can expect several centuries of it. Anyway, throughout the 20th century, right throughout the early 20th century, at least, Bulgaria didn't get on so well with Greece, as there was tension over the possession of Macedonia and Western Thrace. Now, there had been fighting and even full-blown wars before 1925 over these territories. And once again, this tension sparked conflict after an incident uh, that took place in October, again in 1925. Now, what exactly happened is still a matter of debate. It's never been conclusively proven because there are, as you'd expect, two different sides to the story. Um, and neither neither has ever been definitively uh, proven to be the correct one, I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but that my, that's what my reading indicated there. Anyway, in one version, the boring version, right, some Bulgarian soldiers, they cross the Greek border apparently for no reason. I don't really know what's going on there. Had a crack at a Greek outpost and then ended up killing a couple of soldiers there. So that's no good. I mean, I don't know if I, you know, I don't know how much I believe that one. It happens that the other version, the much weirder one, ends up also oddly being the one that's more believable. Um, involves a dog, right? So it's a dog that belonged to uh, a Greek soldier that was uh, out there at, a, at an outpost on the border. Anyway, this dog, right, it gets away and it runs across the border into Bulgaria. The Greek soldier runs across the border to go and retrieve his uh, his little pooch there. And when, uh, after, you know, as this uh, soldier was chasing after the dog, he was shot by one of the Bulgarian border guards. Now, actually, it's it's funny because this one sounds more reasonable than, you know, an unprovoked attack by the Bulgarians on the Greek outpost. But again, who knows? Who knows what actually happened? Um, whatever the cause, you've got Greek blood spilled by Bulgarians. That's that's beyond yeah, that's a matter beyond any doubt. And the Greeks, as you can imagine, are not happy about it. Now, the Bulgarians, they expressed regret at the incident. Not quite an apology. They said it was a misunderstanding. Uh, but this wasn't good enough for Greece. And the Greek government, they demanded an official apology. Fair enough. They demanded that the Bulgarian guards uh, responsible for this whole incident be punished, which is, you know, I mean, all right, mate, calm down a bit there, Greece. What's going on? And also, they demanded two million French francs to make up for it. Are you joking me? I mean, it's it's tragic when anyone's shot, tragic that sort of thing. But come on, Greece, mate, you know, pull your finger out. What's going on there? On top of this, right? On top of this, in order to enforce these demands, Greece then ordered an invasion of Bulgaria to occupy a town, Petrich, near the border, hoping to more or less just hold it hostage until Bulgaria met their demands. Now, obviously, the Bulgarians were not prepared to meet these demands, and so both nations prepared for war. Tens of thousands of soldiers were mobilized. And in the coming days, I mean, open conflict seemed imminent. There was, uh, you know, both countries were very ready to fight. It looks like these old tensions were going to reignite a full-on war once again. And as soldiers marshaled on the borders, there were skirmishes. There were troops clashing here and there in 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 a range of sort of minor fights here and there. Um. However, before the Greeks actually, you know, were able to launch the invasion properly and arrive at Petricks to, to hold it hostage, before the conflict, you know, could escalate too much further, the League of Nations, the interwar precursor to the United Nations, they stepped in and tried to calm everyone down a little bit. The League uh, sent telegrams to both countries, uh, you know, doing that thing where, you know, you stand between two blokes who are trying to batter each other. They oh, go, no, mate, mate, it's not worth it. It's not worth it, mate. Just step away. Just, just, just walk away, mate. It's not worth it. And, uh, and thankfully, the League's intervention actually worked, as it did uh, avert a full-scale conflict between Greece, uh, Greece and Bulgaria, uh, as well as, I might add, a stunning reversal for Greece here, because the League, they ordered both nations to stop fighting and for Greece to withdraw all of its forces from Bulgaria, certainly, you know, very fair, but then ordered Greece to pay £45,000 in compensation to Bulgaria. So never mind that Greece wanted 2 million French francs of its own, it's now going to pay out the ass 45000 uh, British pounds, right, giving that to, to, to Bulgaria by way of compensation. Now, the Greeks, obviously, they're pissed off about this, but they agreed all the same. And uh, French, British and Italian observers were deployed. They came in to oversee the withdrawal of Greek troops, uh, as well as monitor the uh, Bulgarian soldiers who reoccupied where the Greeks had uh, had left uh, to make sure that there was no more fighting or nothing was misinterpreted or whatever else. And this whole thing was over in 11 days. And while, you know, I reckon it is fair to argue that it didn't constitute a proper war, people still did die in the skirmishing, as well as obviously, you know, that poor bloke who was just going after his dog. So I don't know. Look, whether it is or whether it's not a war, I reckon that the Greeks, you know, I don't want to be too critical here, but I do reckon the Greeks just stuffed this one up. They, they stuffed this one up beyond belief. They really did. I mean, they could have done a much better job of bringing the fight to the Bulgarians if they'd really wanted to win the war. They could have just, you know, checked in with the thousands of years of history that the that Greece, uh, you know, that the, 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 the Greek people have uh, at their backs there. Because, Really, if they'd wanted to uh, to take the fight to the Bulgarians, they could have just bunged all their soldiers' great wood back great big wooden horse, wheeled it over into Bulgaria. Easy victory, mate, don't worry about it. The next one we're going to talk about here is the Six Day War, which was fought in 1967 uh, between Israel and many of Israel's neighboring states—Egypt, Syria, uh, and Jordan—along with some minor involvement from uh, Iraq and Lebanon. Now, it was a swift and remarkably bloody war, and it uh, it had a, it had very important consequences for for the region and the world at large. Uh, sort of in, in the years in the years after years and decades after it. Now, the Six-Day War, it came about as a result of some very deep-seated regional tensions uh, about the establishment of the State of Israel in the wake of the Second World War, with various conflicts and crises and and wars flaring up in the decades to follow uh, between Israelis and the neighbouring Arab states. There was the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, there was the Suez Crisis, and there'd been a lot of tension, a lot of fighting, a lot of bloodshed over the years. Anyway, in 1967, the, the tension between Israel and uh, its neighbours, it, it's once again at a fever pitch. There are, there are border skirmishes, there's guerrilla fighting, there's air battles, all sorts of stuff going on. And of course, this is all taking place uh, with the ongoing Cold War as a backdrop. And in mid-1967, the Soviets destabilised the situation even further by inaccurately informing Egypt that Israel was mobilising forces for a full-scale invasion of Syria. Now, in response, Israel mobilised its troops along its border with Israel to the south, expelling UN peacekeepers there on the border. And also, they closed the Straits of Tehran to Israeli shipping, which effectively cut Israel off from the Red Sea. Now, despite Israel not planning a full-scale invasion of Syria here, all of this sabre-rattling from the Egyptians in the south had a very, very real effect. Because uh, you know, after seeing all of these, uh, all these tro- these troops mobilised along their southern border after the the the, stra- the straits were closed, the Straits of Tehran were closed. There, Israel on the fifth of June in nineteen sixty seven, it launched a series of preemptive airstrikes against Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Iraq. Hundreds of Israeli aircraft took to the skies and absolutely obliterated the Egyptian Air Force, before then turning on Jordan, Syria, and Iraq as well. Now, this surprise attack was so effective that it destroyed 90% of Egypt's air forces in one go. Egyptian planes just sitting on the ground in their airfields, completely unprepared to respond to the attack, and almost all of them were destroyed. By the end of the day, right, by the end of the very same day, the 5th of June, Israel, had more or less destroyed all of its enemy's capacity to wage war in the air completely. But it didn't stop there. The Israelis also attacked on the ground. They rolled tanks across the Egyptian border into Gaza, and they forced the unprepared and disorganized Egyptian forces to retreat. And it got a lot worse from the, for, the, for the rest of the Arab states, too. Further north, Jordan had received inaccurate reports that Egypt had won the conflict to the south, and they, so they started shelling Israelis in Jerusalem which led to an Israeli counterattack that saw them capture both the West Bank and East Jerusalem two days later on the 7th of June, which I'll remind you is now the mid-stage of the whole war itself, right? The later stages of the war, you know, the, the, the last couple of days, uh, this saw fighting between Israel and Syria in Golan Heights on the border between the two nations. On the 9th of June, Israel bombed the hell out of this region and then they marched in and captured it on the 10th just like that. And so six days after the fighting had begun, it was over. The United Nations, they helped to broker a ceasefire between the belligerents and the Six-Day War had come to its conclusion. And I mean, look, in real terms, the Six-Day War had actually been won on the first day with Israel's preemptive airstrikes ensuring their air superiority, which left their enemies with no good way to respond to further attacks. The entire conflict hinged upon the success of the Israeli surprise attack. And and because it had been so devastatingly successful, it completely hamstrung the other Arab nations and, and, and left them unable to fight the Israeli in later days. And as a result, a a sweeping chain of Israeli victories in Gaza, in the West Bank, in Golan Heights, Jerusalem, uh, radically altered the the geopolitical situation in this region and uh, and remained an enduringly powerful moment in the history of of this region. It was a, a massive win for Israel, an enormous win for Israel. It left the Arab states surrounding it reeling in defeat. It was, I mean, quite seriously... It was a staggeringly huge loss for them, with over 20,000 Arabs losing their lives. By way of contrast, around 1,000 Israelis perished in the war. It's one of the most one-sided conflicts that you're likely to come across. And of course, its consequences are still felt to this day. The Six-Day War ultimately intensified Arab-Israeli conflict in the years to follow. And uh, it led to you know other conflicts, such as the 1973 uh, Yom Kippur War, and it also redrew Israel's borders to include the West Bank, the Sinai peninsula and the Gaza strip although the peninsula, peninsula, peninsula was later returned to Egypt in 1982 and uh, the occupation status of the Gaza strip is uh, it is complicated to to say the very least i mean look the whole the whole situation is mind-bogglingly complicated and uh, you know with, with so many different forces and factions and factors all influencing the tension that exists through to this very day and much of this tension much of this tension that you may read about in the news even even in 2020 is still focused on the direct results of the six-day war and the land and the territories that were involved in a war that was fought so swiftly and so decisively that it remains one of the shortest wars ever not to mention one of the most impactful conflicts since the back half of the 20th century The next war we're going to get across here also has a, a pretty interesting name. It's known as the Football War, or I guess the Soccer War, as it, as it of course should be called. Footy is obviously played on an oval with 18, uh, 18 people aside, side. Kind Can of the mighty Richmond Tigers. Um, anyway... The uh, the football war, it took place in uh, 1969. It was fought between Honduras and El Salvador, uh, two nations in Central America. And all the boring historians who hate interesting names for things, they instead refer to it as the 100-hour war, because as you might have guessed, it lasted 100 hours, around four days. Now, the sparking of this brief war was uh, absurdly related to a series of soccer matches played between the two nations, although that, of course wasn't the only factor. the soccer the soccer matches were definitely a catalyst. Um, you know they were the match to the tinder, while the underlying causes of the conflict ran much deeper, as you might imagine. The tension between El Salvador and uh, Honduras went back to, uh, it went back to land, uh, immigration, population numbers, and other geographic, political, and social issues. In the 1960s, Honduras was five times bigger than El Salvador, but El Salvador had a much larger population. So as a result, many Salvadorans, they emigrated to Honduras to the point that they made up 20% of the Honduran population. Now, by 1962, right, the Honduran government, uh, they, they'd they responded to this uh, quite forcefully. They confiscated land that was occupied, you Illegally, it might be worth adding, by Salvadoran immigrants, um, and gave it over to, to Hondurans. And by 1967, many Salvadorans had been expelled from Honduras as uh, as as these policies were further further put in place and uh, and uh, and enforced. Now, this included Salvadorans who even had uh, Honduran jobs and families. Uh, so it's fair to say that the two nations they weren't getting they weren't getting on at all. They weren't getting on at all. There's a fair bit of bloody tension between them. I can tell you that a fair bit of argy bargy. And then. Along comes the 1970 Soccer World Cup with its qualifiers, and what's this? El Salvador and Honduras have to play off against each other. Now, the first qualifier for, uh, obviously, the 1970 World Cup, the, the qualifiers are taken place from 1969, and this is, this is what precipitates the whole war, this series of qualifier matches. The first qualifier, it was held in the, uh, in the Honduran capital of Tegucigalpa, and Honduras won 1-0 um now the fans at the game however they got stuck into each other like you wouldn't believe they're going the big biffo they're fighting they're beating the snot out of each other in in the wake of this game or you know irrespective of the result really this was probably going to happen uh which holds up as i tell you now that the second qualifier, which was held in san salvador the capital of el salvador um this time el salvador got up and they won 3-0 uh but this time the violence was even worse. People were, they were blue and they're getting stuck in, they're having a great big carry on about it. And this then spilled over outside the actual soccer game as well, with violence against Salvadorans taking place in Honduras, uh, causing thousands of them to have to flee. And on the day of the third qualifier, right, therefore, which was being held in Mexico City this time, El Salvador, they severed diplomatic ties with Honduras. They said that the government, uh, the the Honduran government had stood by in inaction while Salvadorans had been mistreated by Hondurans. And uh, all of this, right, on the backdrop of the expulsion of these Salvadoran migrants, it meant that the tension had more or less just reached breaking point. A war at this stage seemed very likely. Oh, um, also El Salvador won the third game 3-2 after extra time. I guess for those playing at home, hooray, sports ball. Now, you may ask, it's only game, why you have to be mad? But it was so much more than just game, and it did seem, it really did seem, that people did very much have to be mad. So mad, in fact, that war broke out on the 14th of July, 1969, when El Salvador launched airstrikes on Honduras, beginning the football war. And they did this by, this is not a joke, they did this by strapping explosives to the sides of passenger planes to use as makeshift bombers. The Salvadorans, they attacked Honduran airports from the skies, while their army marched into Honduras on the ground, heading to the capital of Tegucigalpa. Now... The Hondurans, they responded by launching their own air offensive, sending planes off to bomb Salvadoran targets like ports and oil depots. And of course, the Salvadorans, they responded by sending their own planes up to fight off the Hondurans. Actual, you know, fighter planes this time, not just passenger planes and blokes with slingshots hanging out the windows. Although, you know, probably not the fighter planes you are imagining. Because the fighters, right, get this, check this out. The fighters that whirled and dodged in the skies during the football war, they were, in fact second world war era aircraft a little bit like modern troops charging into battles with long swords which is pretty funny the football war was quite interestingly the very last time that piston engine fighter planes fought against each other little fact for the bloody aviation nerds there but they were using what was effectively world war ii technology uh, to fight this war in 1969 Anyway. Given the proximity of the Salvadoran troops to the, uh, to the Honduran capital, Honduras petitioned the OAS, the Organization of American States, to intervene and negotiate a ceasefire, and the OAS did exactly this before the Salvadorans reached uh, Tegucigalpa. And uh, they, they managed to do this at lightning speed as well. This whole uh, negotiation process, the ceasefire, all that sort of stuff, it was arranged by the 18th of July, just four days after the war had begun. El Salvador was made to withdraw from Honduras, although even though this, you know, this conflict was a very short-lived one, by this stage already thousands of people have lost their lives, around 3,000 people died. Um, but Honduras is also made to guarantee that Salvadoran migrants would enjoy the full protection of the law, and so a shaky peace was settled, although a proper peace agreement would take over 10 years to reach after the conclusion of the football war. So the war may have been very short, but the actual formal peace arrangement took another decade. And in that 10 years, the Salvadoran government, unfortunately, they did not do enough to fix the political and social problems in El Salvador. And this directly led to the Salvadoran Civil War, which took place 10 years later, a war that, unlike the football war, would carry on for a very, very long time, from 1979 all the way through to 1992. And as for the El Salvador soccer team that uh, managed to qualify for the 1970 World Cup after that match in, Me- in, uh, in Mexico City, they were knocked out after losing their first three matches. Oops. Finally, we come to the very shortest war in history, the Anglo-Zanzibar War, which took place in 1896. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, you might be thinking, hang on one second, how short can it possibly be? We've had wars that have lasted two weeks, six days, a hundred hours. A war can't get much shorter than that, can it? Well, exalted viewer, hold on to your hats, because I can tell you now that the Anglo-Zanzibar War, the shortest war ever to have been fought was over within 38 minutes. Minutes. Not hours, not 38 hours, 38 minutes. If you started this podcast as the war began, this episode, it would still be playing as the war ended. That is how short this war was. It was shorter than this episode of half past History. What happened was this, right? In 1890, six years previous, Britain and Germany had drawn up a treaty as part of the scramble for Africa, as new imperialism saw European powers race to colonise the African continent. Now, this treaty between uh, Britain and Germany it gave Britain control of Zanzibar, which is a, a straw. was uh, it was, a, it was a, an area, a strip of coastline, some islands, uh, today part of modern day Kenya and and Tanzania. And Britain declared Zanzibar a protectorate rather than a crown colony because it was cheaper to do it that way. Uh, they declared a protectorate. They installed a sultan, uh, Hamad bin Thuwani, uh, who was a uh, a puppet leader, more or less, just a puppet leader of the of the British, uh, and you know, try, basically trying to keep the, this protectorate under control by by yeah, again, just just having a bloke on, in charge who they could control. Now. On the twenty fifth of August, right in eighteen ninety six, before up until this point, things are going relatively smoothly. This bloke Hamad, he's, he's you know he's doing his job. Things are relatively peaceful in Zanzibar up until, as I say, the twenty fifth of August, eighteen ninety six, when Hamad he dies abruptly. Right now, there's talk that he may have been poisoned. It's never been proved conclusively. There's talk that he may have been poisoned by his cousin Khalid bin Bargash, um, and whether or not he did poison Hamad or not. Khalid did not waste time in the wake of his cousin's death because he immediately moved into the royal palace, immediately declared himself the new sultan, and the British were not too pleased with this. They were not too happy with this bloke coming in, you know, this, uh, you know, they were were getting on very well indeed with our puppet government, thank you very much. There is this blasted upstart stepping in without our approval. What is the jolly nerve of this chap, I say? So the British, right, They go to Khalid and they tell him to bugger off, basically. But Khalid, he instead, he doubles down. He gathers soldiers, he gathers supporters... He brings them all to the palace to back him up, and he, uh, you know, he he basically digs in for the uh, for the long haul here. He's got around three thousand armored men protecting the palace, bristling with guns, artillery, all sorts, and uh, Khalid. He's ready. He's ready to make a stand against the British if you know. Indeed, it ends up coming to that. And uh, to further bolster his position, he has also readied the. Um, Zanzibar Navy, I guess he strapped some artillery to his to the royal yacht, the HHS Glasgow, that's out in the port there, and um, well, yeah, I mean that's that's it actually. That that's the story of the Zanzibar Navy. It was it was one ship, a pleasure ship, with some guns what were put on it. Now um, the British, on the other hand, well, I mean as you can imagine, there's a reason for that old song, "Rule Britannia," Britannia rules the waves, because they had warships in the harbour and they had plenty more on the way too. They also began to unload troops uh, into the town in order to, you know, quell any unrest and protect the British buildings there, such as the consulate. Now, the warships, there were two in the harbour already, and they were joined by a third uh, by the end of the 25th. Um, Although they didn't take any action against Khalid, they didn't have the approval of the British government. Um, The chief British diplomat there in Zanzibar, bloke whose name was Basil Cave, he sent a telegram back to London. He asked what to do. Uh, and meanwhile, right, still unsuccessfully, of course, he attempted to talk Kelly down and, you know, some, come to some kind of an arrangement. Now, the next down, the 26th, still no response from Khaled, still nothing coming uh, from him in the palace. But two more British warships arrived, bringing the grand total to five. And so, too, arrived a response from London, which said, you are authorized to adopt whatever measures you may consider necessary and will be supported in your action by Her Majesty's government. Do not, however... Attempt to take any action which you are not certain of being able to accomplish successfully. So having been given the go-ahead here and backed up by no fewer than five warships, Basil Cave, he, uh, the diplomat, he, he issues an ultimatum to Khalid. He says, you've got to vacate the palace, mate, by 9am the next morning or there's going to be big trouble. Now, Khalid, he didn't even bother responding to this ultimatum, not at first at least. He actually just ignored it you know for the rest of the 26th. It wasn't until 8 a.m. on the 27th, an hour before the ultimatum expired, that he finally responded saying, we have no intention of hauling down our flag and we do not believe that you would open fire on us. Now, this proved, as you might have already guessed, To be a bad move. Because it as as it turned out, the British were, in fact, prepared to open fire on them, as Khalid then found out. Because at 9 a.m., Khalid had still not surrendered, and two minutes later, the Anglo-Zanzibar War began when the British warships began to let rip at two minutes past nine. They turned some of their guns on the HHS Glasgow and they shot it below the waterline, and it immediately surrendered as it began to sink. But hey. We're all winners for having taken part, right? Funnily enough, actually, the uh, the harbor the harbor wasn't deep enough for the Glasgow to sink all the way under uh, when it hit the bottom, right? Some of its masts were still on top; they still remained above the waterline even after it hit the bottom, which I think is pretty funny. Anyway, the British uh, they also began to bombard the palace, of course, and within minutes. It was reduced to a smoking ruin. Um, it was mainly made of wood, and so it caught fire very quickly. And the explosive shells that the British used uh, to bombard it absolutely just they just obliterated it, right? The British warships, they continued to bombard the palace for, well, minutes. I mean, it's not that imp- it doesn't sound that impressive, like min- oh, minutes and minutes, thirty eight of them, in fact, until the war, <laughs> the whole war finally came to an end as the Zanzibaris, Uh, ...that were left in the palace, they raised a flag of surrender. The British fired 500 shells in those 38 minutes... ...and there was some hand-to-hand fighting in the streets as well. And for such a short war, tragically, the death toll was very high. 500 Zanzibaris were killed, including some civilians... Um, and most of those who died were those uh, were the people in the palace uh, who obviously perished as it uh, you know, uh, during during its destruction uh, while the palace was destroyed. So very sad there. As for the British, they had a single sailor become wounded by the fighting, and he went on to recover. And that's it. No deaths at all. That was the entire story of the British casualties there. The British, of course, after this, they regained full control of Zanzibar, and by the end of the day, they had installed a new puppet sultan, Hamoud bin Muhammad, uh, this one with even less power than before. As for Khalid, he he sought refuge in the German embassy, and uh, he was smuggled out of the country, although he was later captured by the British in 1916, and he ended up being exiled on the island of St Helena, where Napoleon was exiled a century beforehand. As for Zanzibar, uh, it remained a British protectorate until 1964, and today you'll find the bulk of the old Sultanate in Tanzania. Now, the often quoted 38-minute duration of the Anglo-Zanzibar War, this is based on the fact that the British guns, they fired from 902 to 940, although you may actually hear people say the war was anywhere from, you know, 40 to 45 minutes long, depending on how you measure it. But... Even so, no other war comes close in terms of brevity. We're arguing about minutes here, you know, when most wars throughout history are measured in years, or decades, or in some cases, centuries. So, you know, while war is, of course, a terrible, terrible thing, at least here, it was over very quickly indeed. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. Those are the stories of the five shortest wars in history. There are a couple of others, as I mentioned. You know, some that don't really fall within that uh, that arbitrary date range that I've set up, and and some other ones that are, you know. Perhaps a little hard to classify. as, I mean, we did scrape the bottom of the barrel when it comes to that. I guess with the War of the Stray Dog, but still, hope you hope you got a kick out of these stories. They were pretty interesting to to hear about. And uh, I, I mean, I don't know if the next episode is going to be the you know the five longest wars in history. <laughs> we'll be here for a very long time. We have to get have to get across all of them, but uh, very interesting to hear about some of the uh, you know some of the some of the weirder stories from the history of warfare. There anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode. And thanks once again to uh, to Nachum Hackett for. Uh, sending it in as a uh, as a topic suggestion. If you want to do the same thing, of course, half head over to the website uh, and there's a contact form there. You can also subscribe to the, uh, the the show on iTunes, Spotify, a number of other places, of course, and uh, find odd episodes to download at uh, at your leisure. Um, also, if you want to buy some Half House History merch, I've still got some t-shirts, got plenty of notebooks as well. Um, the t-shirts are kind of running low-ish. We're getting, I'm getting close. Uh, plenty of notebooks, however. So if you want a notebook, um, you can pick up one of them uh, at the shop. Free shipping worldwide, of course. You want to take advantage of that, no worries. Uh, and if you want to support the show on Patreon, please do. Uh, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash half history. Thank you so much to all the people who are doing so. Uh, and if you want to go and sign up, I certainly very much appreciate it. But I just appreciate you listening to the show anyway. Regardless whether you're supporting me financially or not, Or, or not, it is, uh, it's a real privilege that people come and, uh, you know, spend, uh, well... Half an hour, 40 minutes, an hour maybe, on good weeks, uh, hanging out with me, talking about some history. So uh, thank you very much for your time, and uh, and thanks for being part of this dumb show. But as ever, going to leave you with a uh, a question here. Now, obviously, you know, there are plenty of questions on warfare that I could have done here, but we did touch briefly upon soccer, a game that I really can't stand, and uh, and, and, and for good reason. Uh, this sort of ties into the question posed by Redditor MasonBoss505 here, who asks... How do soccer players heal from their injuries so quickly?